live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, good evening, and welcome to the show. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My, I am your host this evening, Yona Bud. Thank you for listening to us here at 640 Toronto. We're so glad to have you. We've got some exciting uh, stuff to do tonight, things to talk about, and uh, very important that you stick with us and we chat about them together. We're going to look at things like the 911 dispatcher issue with uh, um, having people attend. It's very hot now, as you know, in the, in the media, how the police and uh, first responders that deal with crisis are going to come together and figure out how to come up with a response package that makes sense for those that are in crisis as opposed to those that are breaking the law. Anyway, um, that's coming up. We've got a whole bunch of other stuff to do. And if you're just tuning in right now, this is a show about people helping people and me trying to give you a little bit of direction where we can and highlighting some stuff that make our lives a little better based on the current news and information that's out there. You know, I always wanted to be that guy that was like the famous guys, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you, you have like the entourage, right? You can go anywhere, limos here, limos there. I just, I, I used to think that that was, especially when I was younger, that was just like a cool way to go. You know, everybody knows who you are, you know, you go into any restaurant, anywhere you go, people want your autograph. Um, but I grew up <laughs> and I grew up and started working with people that were in that position that were in fact, um, had some form of notoriety, be it, be it uh, in film, be it in music, be it in sports. And I came to the conclusion that I don't want to be them because it's a life that I'm not prepared to live, meaning under the spotlight, right? That constant, constant attention. I deal with kids in my, in my, my youth practice that are, you know, in their teens, 15, 16, 17, that are highly high achievers in the stuff they do so sports music academics sometimes um and being on that pedestal for them at such a young age causes many to feel suicidal you know you look at them when you do it when i do a crisis to uh sort of an overview an assessment of what the situation is when i'm talking to the parents initially and they tell me about how amazing the kids are you know they're best of this and best of that and they top of this and top of that and can't understand why they're so depressed and they want to hurt themselves. So we try to explain to parents that staying up there on that pedestal, especially for a young person, for anybody for that matter, very difficult to do. Very difficult to always be that person. You know, that, oh, you know, my son, he's like amazing. He does this. He does. And we're saying nice things about our kids to other people. But at the same time, our kids are listening, going, OMG, what if I decided I don't want to do this anymore? So, when you're looking at famous people and you say, wow, what a life, look at the houses, look at the, if they're single, look who they're dating, who they're living with now, who they're, you know, and you actually come to the conclusion that, wow, what a life that would be. Lately though, last couple of years, especially maybe two, three years, we hear a lot about famous people, famous musicians, famous actors in sports. We saw it recently in the world of, of tennis and other sports. Uh, where um, specific athletes walked away from situations, walked away from news media scrums where they were supposed to share information because the pressure and the anxiety around being on all the time was too much to bear. Jonah Hill, you know about Jonah Hill. He's a great actor. Uh, he starred in 21 Jump Street. The world, he was, on, he was uh, with, uh, on the Wolf of Wall Street. 
Uh, he's 38 year old and he decided to explore mental health and the impact his job had um, on his anxiety in an upcoming documentary he created called Stutz. I don't know when it's coming out, where it's coming out. Uh, he says, I finished decorating my second, uh, directing my second film, a documentary about me and my therapist, which explores mental health in general called Stutz. The whole purpose of making the film is to give therapy and the tools I've learned in therapy to a wide audience for private use through an entertaining film, he said in a statement. The journey of self-discovery for him was within the film. Basically, the bottom line is, right, he's just had enough. I've made myself sicker by going out there and promoting myself, promoting the movie itself. I won't be, I wouldn't be acting true to myself or to the film, said the actor. He's moving away. His last appearance was in 2021. Don't look up with this letter. He says he's hoping to make more people talk and act on the stuff that bothers them. But he is walking away from the spotlight. He no longer wants to do media appearances and promotional things, which you do when you make a movie, that's a big deal. You got to do the follow-up, right? Or you make an album, you got to do the follow-up. Last year, Ryan Reynolds spoke about the impact of anxiety had on his life and work. He described the anxiety, which he said he had since kids, since he was a kid, since childhood. An engine for creativity, but it's also got its own cloud and shroud of darkness. Wow. In April, in singer Camila Cabello, she opened up about the crippling anxiety she felt while making her album Familia. She's now in a better place. She said, adding, she attributes that to her vulnerability and the efforts to heal by being vulnerable, by being open. So you can't be vulnerable. How do you heal if you're not vulnerable? Hard to do. That vulnerability requires you exposing yourself and it's difficult to, emotionally, I'm suggesting, uh, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically exposing yourself. But you got to do that in a safe place. And in front of a whole bunch of cameras, so to speak, on the pedestal, so to speak, is a very difficult place to shred that, say, that, that, to create that safety net, to shred that stuff that's on the inside that's vulnerable, that's risky. You know, Tom Holland, he's taking a break from social media. It's very difficult to determine. Uh, it's very detrimental to his mental state. So, you know, actors and actresses and, and, and famous people, so to speak, they're all moving away from their social media, being plugged in all the time, being listening to what people say about them and the comments they make about them. What's the lesson we can learn from this this evening, my dear friends? The lesson is care less about what people think about you. Care more about how you feel inside about yourself. When you look in the mirror in the, in the bathroom in the morning, you're all by yourself. That's who you've got to be honest with. That's who matters. That's where it makes a difference. Inside, not outside. So do like so many of these famous people. Sure, we want to be famous like them. So let's attribute ourselves. Let's take the same types of things and attribute the same skills and, and, and suggestions and uh, things that they're doing to try to improve their mental health and their state of mind by saying no, by walking away from situations that may cost them millions of dollars, but realizing that their health comes first. And absolutely, we all have to understand that our health, physical and mental health, absolutely comes first. After that, the world's your oyster, as they say. Coming up, we have so many other things to do. The next thing we're going to do, that we said earlier, we're going to talk about the 911 dispatchers and the fact that they need a little more confidence in the crisis workers before they're going to send them calls and see how that's going to impact this pilot project. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto.
Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Lately, we've had uh, this merge of uh, conversations about folks that um, are calling for uh, 911 support in the heat of a, a mental health crisis and getting perhaps a little bit more of a, an aggressive response than they feel they need, since that then they've then decided collectively that they were going to morph a team of uh, policing experts in with crisis experts as a team to uh, attend at those calls and pre- preferably in plain clothes and so on. Um, and from what I understand, the, the model makes tons of sense. But the police and emergency dispatchers themselves need more faith in the crisis workers employed through a city program that offers a non-police response to mental health needs, says the advocate says, right? Jennifer Chambers, she's the executive director of the Empowerment Council, a mental health advocacy organization funded by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, says that there haven't been enough police, um, haven't been enough police referrals through the city's pilot program meant to divert mental health calls, and she thinks that that's probably a, a probably a, a, a um, and, and probably right. We're going to find out here because we're going to talk to uh, Jennifer Chambers here in just a second. But it, it seems to be that perhaps police and nine one one folks aren't so confident to throw it over. Perhaps there's maybe a little bit of ownership. Maybe you know there's something about who owns the who owns the caller, who owns the client, who owns the patient, right? So I'm not really sure where that's coming from. But um, Jennifer Chambers, she's executive director of the Empowerment Council. She's my guest this morning. Good morning, Jennifer. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so, am I am I right in thinking that, or in, in in the take on the fact that you're we're just not getting the calls handed over because the, those that are dispatching the calls don't feel comfortable? The rate of referral to community crisis services does need to increase, and I believe it will happen, but it's going to take time for confidence in a good outcome to overcome, to overcome fear of a negative outcome, I think. There is a lot of goodwill, but police services have historically been focused on security and safety concerns, so there's a tendency to see everything through the lens of risk, which is understandable in the work that they do. That's exactly why mental health calls need another place to go. Yeah, no kidding. So have we had so the ones that you've handled so far? Um, so hang on, let me go backwards here. There's 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 not enough referral from police, uh, according to a statement you made uh, in in this article that I'm drawing from for CBC. Um, and um, you said that last month the city released a progress report based on two community partners, Gerstein Crisis Center, a great organization, and Tebu Community Health Center, who I don't know anything about, uh, which showed that the TCCS, <coughs> excuse me, Toronto, um, uh, that's the Crisis Call Center, correct, uh, received 549 calls from March to June. Most of the calls, about 461, came from 911 or 211. Mobile teams were dispatched 438 times. Are you drawing from that the results that show that this pilot project actually works? Like, are we tracking it? And frankly, how can it not work? Uh, excellent point. I wasn't the one who supplied those numbers, although I have seen them. Uh, I think that there, when the calls and diversions to community-based crisis services have been made, that they have had successful outcomes, which includes linking people to what they need in the long run. Because most mental health calls are actually about getting unmet needs addressed and to do this, it requires time to listen to the person, understand them, and also knowledge of where they can get connected uh, so those needs are addressed. Um, 
There are, of course, limitations to this alternative right now because we're talking about four pilot projects. So not all of Toronto can be served and services aren't necessarily available 24-7. Um, right. But these, these services are exactly what people with lived experience of mental health issues have been asking for for decades but didn't get outside of the Gerstein. Instead, they got an expanded mobile crisis intervention model, which included a police officer and a hospital worker, which is probably why there were rarely calls to 911 about mental health. They were from the person themselves, but people uh, themselves were calling community crisis services all the time. So uh, in the long run, they're going to need the province and the national government to step up and expand these community-based crisis services so they're available to everyone. A lot's going to be riding on the evaluation of these pilots to prove how valuable it is yeah. to offer an alternative to 911 calls. And part of that will probably be uh, the process of, sort of changing the police culture to see me- mental health calls as more of a need for public service than security issues. So, but my, I guess my point of going back to the, the, the question I originally shared with you and you partially answered, but um, sure. there are, there, there, you, know, in, in, you know, in therapy itself, as I'm sure you know, um, you know, we try to get patients, clients to draw from positive experiences that, you know, drive them through the difficult times they might be faced with at that moment. So the same too with this, if there's, you know, if we're seeing, if you're getting hundreds of handoffs and you're act- and these mobile units are out there doing the work, um, and the results are positive, one would hope, um, mm-hmm. If the, then why can't we just trade on that and, and, and over, t- see, I guess over time, you know, the, the 911 folks will be just more comfortable. But if you're doing a great job and it's working, why aren't we just showing that to those that are that are in charge of whatever they need to be in charge with to expand this thing? Because I'm not sure you're even reaching the communities that are truly at risk. I think that the that information is being provided both to the police and um, dispatch end to show that the calls that have been diverted have been successful um, and to some extent to the community. Uh, I think there is right now a, a limitation to the ability of the crisis services to respond if the whole city of Toronto started calling 211, which is right. how you could right. reach community crisis services um, because right. they're not available throughout the whole city. However, I do think it needs to be publicized that 211 is a route for reaching community crisis services because that means that people don't even have to go to the, the triaging system that uh, emergency services has. You can just go directly to asking for community-based crisis services. The Toronto Police Service uh, received about 33,000 mental health calls last year. Um, Staff Superintendent Randy Carter, um, he said that a non-police approach to mental health calls is a learning experience that is slowly catching on but sees room for expansion. So that's coming from Toronto Police Service. We're building confidence in our 911 call takers to trust that this program does work and to recognize and understand that sometimes sending the police creates the type of scenario that we all worry about might happen when crisis workers go, so on. So, I, and, and I, think, I think you're bang on the money, very articulately put, that police you know, see this through a security lens, perhaps more so than, a, than through a therapy or a harm reduction um, lens. Um, and, fa- and, and fair, right? I mean, that's not mm-hmm. how they're trained. Um, you know, one would hope over time, maybe this is something to float by you here, Jennifer, we only got a minute left. Um, is it possible or in your mind, do you think that this somehow that police will have training 
in the future where they are better equipped to handle crisis or police officers choose to become police officers slash crisis response folks that are trained with more mental health capabilities uh, and treatment type capabilities? You think that's where this needs to go or will always be some third party? We've got less than a minute. Uh, Alternatives to police still greatly need to be expanded, but there will still be calls that are going to go to police if there's a weapon, for for instance, that's involved. So, Definitely, um, police training and de-escalation is still vital. Uh, Toronto Police Services does a relatively good job at doing that. Other services, not as much. Uh, so uh, there's never going to be a lack of need for police to be able to handle um, people in distress and to be good at de-escalating situations. Terrific. Well, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm really hoping this is successful because I think it's desperately needed. Uh, kudos to you and your team for being on top of this. Jennifer Chambers, she's the executive director of the Empowerment Council, um, doing a great job just uh, doing what we need to do, just having advocates out there making sure good things happen. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. You are on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud here at 640 Toronto. I'll be your host this evening. So happy to have you. We know you have other choices and we're glad that you chose us. This is something that really caught uh, our attention, both mine and our producer. You know, we, we were looking at things that we thought might, you know, interest people and sort of get you kind of ready for the end of the summer and kind of more battle ready to go back to school with, you know, get your kids going back to school. Or if you're a kid listening, why aren't you in bed getting you ready to go back to school? So that's what we do here on the show. And we're so happy that we're able to share it with you, but you know, we're talking about veterans over the last uh, year or two Canadian veterans and some of the issues they were facing with post-traumatic stress and some that I see in my practice. And there was an article that popped up. Uh, it's a U.S. article actually that uh, talks about, uh, how veterans are reluctant uh, to get help, not just for substance abuse and mental health issues, but interestingly enough for sleep problems. I can tell you from my experience with patients that sleep is a really important factor. And it's a giveaway, right? Someone isn't sleeping well. It's usually a giveaway that something's not settled inside. And we look through that to see if we can find the triggers and the things that cause that. But American vets, they are the least willing to seek treatment for health conditions that are more prevalent in their communities, including sleep, alcohol abuse. Uh, So people don't want to go and get help uh, if you're in a community for drug and alcohol abuse because they believe it's stigmatized. I believe it's a sign of of real real heroism for you to get the help that you need. Anyway, there's a study done at the University of Missouri School of Medicine. The study included 334 veterans from 46 states, so pretty widespread. 66% were male and 70 identified themselves as persons of color. So of the 66% that were male, 70% were persons of color. Participants completed a screening questions for 15 medical conditions, including insomnia, hazardous alcohol use. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sure my guests will help me. Drug use, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Uh, The majority of the participants indicated that they would be willing to seek treatment both for physical, um, for both physical and mental health. However, they all reported significantly greater willingness to seek treatment for physical than for mental health conditions. According to the principal investigator, her name is Mary Beth uh, Miller. She has a PhD, so we can call her Dr. Miller. She's earned it and it's legit. Uh, Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks for staying up with us this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me. How did you conduct the study and what did you find once you did it? So this was this was just an online survey. The study itself wasn't too hard. Veterans could be anywhere in the United States. 
Um, this was done during COVID in part because I was having trouble recruiting and just wanted to make sure that I was still targeting health conditions that veterans thought were important in their own communities. It was right. part of the impetus for the study. Um, so it was just an online survey. They answered a bunch of questions for us. Some of them being like what mental health and physical health conditions they had. And then also their willingness to seek treatment for those conditions and how important they thought all those various conditions were. Um, and so these are some of the things that came up. The most prevalent issues were sleep problems and alcohol use. Then was chronic health conditions like heart disease or diabetes. Those were the next most prevalent and uh, PTSD or traumatic events, not PTSD necessarily, but exposure to traumatic events was about half the sample reported that. And then rates of depression, and anxiety were like one in three participants reported those. But I was really surprised to see that, you know, those conditions that were most prevalent and sleep in particular, I didn't yeah, think be right? stigmatizing. Yeah. Right. Okay. But the, it was one of the fewer that they were willing to. So I actually followed up and actually had conversations with a couple of veterans who participated to help make sense of what was going on. Right. And this is one of the things they told me was that, um, well, one thing is that for some of those mental health conditions, it's hard to know when it's an issue, right? Like it's not a broken bone. Right. So it's not as clear sometimes, like at what point is my drinking harmful? I don't really know. Right. But then the other thing was that for sleep in particular, it's just so normal that they also like, aren't sure, like it seems normal. Right. So even if my sleep is troubling to me and I don't like it, it's, this is just life for everybody. And yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, you certainly wouldn't seek out a professional, you know, unless, you you know, it depends on who you are, I suppose. But, you know, if 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 sleep is just, you know, talk to everybody and none of, no, none of your buddies are getting sleep. It's just become, like you say, normalized. But it's a big deal, isn't it? It is a big deal. Yeah, it has huge implications for your day to day and your long term health. One would think that approaching veterans to talk about anything other than veteran type stuff would be difficult. So uh, I'm not, you know, the group that I know and I've been exposed to don't even talk about things like, you know, they just got diagnosed with something like a, a heart you know, defibrillation or, you know, they got asthma or they just, you know, they, they just, you know, discovered that they have uh, diabetes. They my, my experience, at least in Canada here with Canadians. Uh, Canadian military is that they see any of that as a chink in the armor in terms of it's not a macho thing to kind of complain about anything other than perhaps missing a leg based on where they're coming from. You think that's the case in terms of the normalization of the information that you found? Like you just suck it up buttercup kind of thing? I definitely think that's what's going on in terms of willingness to seek treatment is that it's just this is a thing. I don't, yeah, suck it up. Man up, a lot of them said. <laughs> Even the females, right? Even the females <laughs> Probably, want to yeah, <laughs> man up. Um, so let's let's talk about this a little bit. They examine the role dis, uh, discrimination plays. So if we have a, just a bit of time, um, can we talk about? I mean, it's it, again not un, um, not a surprise that uh, people who report uh, uh, people of color uh, that they perhaps don't have the same access to information and opportunity. But my understanding is a veteran is a veteran is a veteran, regardless of color, race, creed, and whatever. Is that not the fact? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So why wouldn't they have equal access to the same veteran affairs type or veteran support type programs uh, that anybody else would have access to? So that, that's not actually what we looked at. Um, there are probably lots of reasons they might not have access 
it might not be close to their community there. It might not be, you know, it could be hours away instead of local. It could be, um, they don't have the, you know, lots of different reasons, but we were actually looking at just their willingness to seek treatment if it right. were available. Right. Um, what, did the results surprise you at all? I mean, are you surprised with what you found out beyond the, with the discrimination piece? thing? Yeah. Or just in general, beside the sleep piece. I mean, uh, so, oh, so you see the thing of the concept of, of of color barrier being a discrimination thing versus an access thing. I'm, I'm, right. Yeah, so, I, what what we asked them, the question was just, how willing would you be to seek treatment if this were a problem for you, basically? And what we found was that for veterans of color, those who reported more daily experiences of discrimination, so just thinking people are treating them differently uh, gotcha. because of their race or ethnicity. They reported less willingness to seek treatment for both types of like medical and mental health conditions just overall, which makes sense, right? Like if I think that people are discriminating and believe that people are discriminating against me and yep. I've had not so great experiences, that makes me less interested in seeking out help from other people. And, and that there lies a big part of the problem, right? So people that really need help and, you know, should have help and probably could have access to help uh, defeat it in their own minds, right? In terms of what they predetermined as a barrier and, and based on experiences and, 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 and with respect uh, yeah. is, ba is based on real life experiences. Um, yeah. And fair enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think the barriers that most veterans of color face? You know, we're not necessarily talking about people who have, you know, minimal income or, 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 or living in, you know, less than, you know, normal communities and, and, and proper housing and so on. Uh, typically veterans of color and veterans in general, come home with some kind of program, do they not? They do, yeah. Well, they have access to it. I don't know how how easy it is for them to access it. Like the VA you were talking about, mm -hmm. VA healthcare is supposed to be nationwide, uh, regardless of color or creed, as you were saying, but not everyone is lives close to a VA healthcare facility and not everyone lives close to a high quality VA healthcare facility. So what, what, do you, what are you gonna do with this information now that you have it? What am I going to do? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think the goal for me is just to help, you know, and this is part of the reason I, I appreciate you talking about the study on the air is just helping disseminate understanding of uh, the treatments that are available, because this is the other thing that came up when I was talking to them about the study. It was not just, you know, we don't really know when it becomes a problem, but also I'm not sure they know what, what treatment for some of these disorders looks like for exactly. sleep, for sleep in particular. <laughs> the overall consensus was that means sleep medication. You're going to give me a sleep medication. I don't want one. And the gold standard treatment for sleep is not a sleep medication. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it should be highly accessible, especially within the VA healthcare system. And so I think part of what I would like to do is just make that more widely known. Yeah, I believe, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that now, uh, first of all, let, let's go backwards for a second. I, I think we have, I think a minute left, but um, you know, and I'd love to have you come back and talk some more uh, later on in the year and see it, you know, how this has impacted anything or anybody that you've shared it with. But, he, you know, we look at people who kind of lose their stuff some Saturday afternoon at a Costco uh, in some small town USA. And then we look back at, you know, when and they, and they have a really hard time and they act out in a negative way, perhaps in a violent way. Uh, and then we look back at the story as to how this happened. Where did they come from? And typically we see people in many, many situations People who, you know, we've all known had some issues, and especially when you see certain situations where veterans come back 
and through their post-traumatic stress or horrible night dreams, they get up in the middle of the night. Many have weapons because you can have them in the U.S. and so on, especially if you've been a, an officer of, uh, or, or uh, worked at, lived in, 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 the, in the service. Um, you know, wake up in the middle of the night thinking that they're under, under attack and go out and do horrible things. Um, so it's not just it would be nice if they got the help. I think it's a, a serious national safety issue. So 30 seconds or less, how, how do you respond to that, Mary Beth? Um, I agree. I agree. I think it is, <laughs> it is important. The The rates of people actually getting up in the middle of the night and doing those things is pretty low, but yeah, in general, I, I think it's important. Yeah, and, and, and we're on the air, right? So in order to get people to pay attention to this, we have to really kind of share with them, you know, how does this dumb down to something that we should care about? This yeah. is how. This is why it's something we should care about. Uh, really appreciate you having your your having you on the air. It's it, it's an interesting study. Uh, really, I'm really kind of interested in the sleep piece, like you are. But uh, maybe we can talk about it another time. I'm talking to Dr. Mary Beth Miller. She's a assistant professor of clinical psychiatry uh, at MU School of Medicine in the United States. And uh, great study, great guest. Thanks for being on. And uh, when we come back, we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. Yeah, I'm a little dusty here. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show, boy. The first hour is almost over. Um, I'm having a good time. I hope you are too, and I hope you're learning something. I'm learning so much about so many different things tonight. Uh, when we come back, we got so many other things. That I, I say so a lot, right? We have a lot of other things to do when we come back. I uh, want to hear from you for a couple of segments. We have an open segment for uh, listeners to call in. Love to hear from you all. Um, unless you're out, you know, on a Saturday night, because, you know, it's 9 to nine to 11. It's almost, what, almost 10 o'clock. Are you out at the bingo hall? If you're out at the bingo hall and you're kind of listening to us anyway and not focused on bingo, you should be getting out of there and go, go to a Timmy's, get yourself a coffee or decaf coffee and call it a night. But what we've noticed here is that the Ontario Lottery and Gaming folks, they've done a really good job of sneaking machines in that represent, according to the, the report, represent some form of bingo-related type games that they used to play manually that you can now play electronically. And by no means is this gambling or gaming, according to the experts from that organization. The OG says bingo halls, it calls them charitable gaming centers. Yeah, really? I guess somebody goes to charity because a portion of the revenue goes to 2,200 local charities. At what portion? So what we're talking about are machines in bingo halls that probably are not necessarily safe for those that might have issues with gaming, gambling, and things like that. And my understanding is with these machines, you can lose a lot more money faster on these passive looking machines than you can on a bona fide slot machine in a legitimate casino environment. My guest this evening is Dr. Kevin Herring, uh, Harrigan, and he's the director of Knowledge Translation Stream and the contact person for Gambling Research Lab. Uh, good evening, Kevin, and thanks for joining us. Okay, good evening. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure. So I'm sure you're aware of the article that we're talking about here. I believe it was from the, uh, from the Star uh, a week or so ago, I think August 12th. The question I have for you is, is this a problem? Oh, this is a huge problem. Like when the OLG said they were going to modernize uh, bingo halls and they would you know, computerize uh, bingo. I think we 
kind of made sense to everybody. You know, you got all these paper cards and all these dabbers and stuff that people use playing bingo. And uh, either you could continue to do that or you could play it on a, on a computer screen. And we've switched to computers for almost everything that we do. So it seemed kind of reasonable that we might do some modernization of bingo halls. But these bingo halls today, for example, at St. Clair in uh, Toronto that I was at recently with the Toronto Star Reporter, these are casinos. I mean, they have machines that look like uh, slot machines, act like slot machines, are manufactured, programmed by the same people that make slot machines, the biggest manufacturer in the world, IGT. You lose money on these at the same rate that you lose money on a slot machines are a little bit faster. They're targeting, they're very specific about that, a different clientele. Traditionally, it's women and a lot of older women that play bingo. And uh, so this is trying to and is attracting a, a younger clientele. And the problem is you lose so much money so quickly on these machines that it's uh, it really leads to problems quite quickly. What's the difference between a slot machine and, quote unquote, a gaming betting machine? OK, so I'll, I'll tell you the difference. But first, just for your, your audience, just to understand is that if you went up and played one of these machines, you would think it's a slot machine. I mean, that's how much they resemble a slot machine and don't resemble bingo. And uh, it's the same graphics. It's not even different graphics. It's the same graphics used at the casinos in in Ontario. Same same manufacturers, same programs. What is different is how they determine the outcome, which is irrelevant to the the player. But I understand it well. And that is on a slot machine, you use a random number generator to determine the outcome. And it's random. And with the, uh, these machines, they use previously played bingo games to determine the outcome. But those bingo games themselves are random. So, you know, as a player, you never knew in the first place where this randomness came exactly, from. Exactly. And, and now it's coming from a different place. So I think it's just incredible that the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario would approve these games for bingo halls because they have very, very little resemblance to bingo. And, you know, the discussion around things like money laundering and abuse of the, of the machines and a cash grab by the government and, and the hall operators and so on, it really does, you know, for me, you know, when I deal with addic- people with addictions and obsessive behaviors and compulsions like this, you know, it's, it, 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 they might, be a, you know, might kind of a, put a fancy cloak over it but it's it's just a way to throw your money away and get some kind of buzz, maybe. But um, when you when you played, according to the article, you lost uh, t- in ten seconds. Uh, Diamond's machine, his forty cent wager quickly disappeared each time as electronic music played on and candy colored reels of kings, queens, and whatever flew by. Did you feel like you were being sucked in? Like, you, did you get? Is it that same buzz for you? Uh, it's not for me. I'm, I'm not a gambler. No, so, no. But when you, when yeah. the, the experience, I appreciate, the experience I appreciate is, not a gambler. <laughs> the experience is exactly the same. How fast you can play and all the tricks they do in slot machines, they do on these machines. Because remember, it's only the random number generator part that's, that's changed. The, the games are just like slot machines. Usually when you win and it bells go off and fancy graphics and stuff, you actually lost. So, so let's say you bet a dollar and you win 20 cents. So it yeah. celebrates this 20 cent win. <laughs> yeah. And we in our lab have shown that physiologically people feel that that is a win. They sweat the same as they do for a win. But in fact, they've lost 80 cents. You know, in a, in a, in a, like in a casino environment itself, right? Uh, when someone who is, um, 
when someone is uh, overdoing it, there's some level of supervision or, or at least someone who can come aside, you know, maybe you want to step back and have a coffee. Here's have a coffee on us or go for, go for lunch in, in place. If in, in most of these bingo halls, particularly the one on St. Clair, uh, you can get stuck in there a whole day and no one even knows you're there. That, that's true. And uh, I, I think it's just stunning how much you can lose. Like on yeah. average, you lose about a hundred bucks an hour playing these machines. So right. you go there for the evening, you know, that's your entertainment a few hours. Well, there's three or 400 bucks gone. And that's only if you're wagering a dollar per play, like you can wager $12 per play. And so now you're losing like a thousand dollars an hour playing these machines. And not many of us can handle losing money at that rate. For a lot of people, you know, who have gaming issues, gambling issues, uh, you know, they rely on, let's say their spouse, their roommate, maybe a parent. Uh, someone, you know, to say, hey, you know, where are you going tonight? You're going to Ramway? Maybe it's a, you should take a pass. But, you know, if there's a bingo hall in your neighborhood and you say to your buddy, I'm just going to run up to the bingo hall and play a couple of hands and see what's up. Meantime, you're playing these, you know, one-armed bandits, as they would call back in the day. I don't know if they still are. You still get to play out your, your obsession, your issue. Um, and, you know, it's difficult because it's not a place you would expect someone to go who's got a gaming issue. People don't typically have a bingo issue other than they make place play compulsively because they enjoy the experience they enjoy but how much money can you lose playing or win playing bingo in this case this electronic format like you say you can lose 100 bucks in an hour uh, and no one's paying attention where, where does where do you stand in terms of the information you have the studies you've done uh, the stories that you've shared uh, you know as you, as you indicated you know your job in fact is to share the stream of information that comes from the lab Where's it going and what impact do you think it's going to have, if any? I think it's disappointing that they're approved in these games, they're approved in Ontario charity gaming centers, as they call them. And uh, I think it's where it's going is wherever casinos are going. I mean, the, these are now casinos. Like, like there's no way that you would walk into one of these facilities and go amongst these games and you know walk up and down the aisles and feel you're in a bingo hall. So all the modern advances that come to casinos, to slot machines and casinos, will come to these and, and, and bingo halls. And they already are there. Like they have these photo in the Toronto Star, like they have these big yep, yep, yep. Uh, screens and, you know, comfy chairs. So I, I think it's only going to get worse. So I, I think somebody should really relook at this and whether these machines should be allowed in bingo halls at all. And certainly I would come down and if, you know, if I had some authority, I'd take them out of there tomorrow before the weekend. So we reduce the amount of problems that are going to be caused by these machines. Do you take this information to government? Do you take this information to the alcohol and tobacco folks and go, hey, you know, this is what we see and have you looked like, I guess where I'm coming from is at what point do we, do we as a government, does the government have a responsibility to identify these as gaming centers so that people with addictions and people with problems uh, aren't pissing their lives away, so to speak, and, and spending money they probably don't really have to lose. But it's, you know, it's, it's just in your neighborhood. Like it's like buying beer at the variety store. I don't like it either. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that we've had more success in other jurisdictions, people uh, changing juris jurisdictions, changing regulations than we have in Ontario. So I've sat down with the regulators. I've been to the the testing lab many times, not many times, but times over the years, and uh, explained to the head of the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario 
things that they're doing in these games that shouldn't be allowed. And he, at the time, the, the head of the Alcon Gaming Commission seemed astonished that, that manufacturers are using all the tricks that they're using. So I thought, you know, maybe by the next day or by the next week or so, there'd be some regulation come out, talk to these manufacturers, say you can't do this anymore with the, on these games. But nothing has essentially changed. We've been working hard. We've been trying to influence uh, regulations in Ontario, and we've had very little success. It's generally about money, right? Any way you look at it, whether it's and 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 what what I really what I really think what really bothers me, to be honest with you, uh, you know, Kevin, like one on one. What bothers me is they kind of veil this thing as a, as a good thing for charities, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's a charitable location. And so you spend your hundred bucks, but yeah, okay. So I lost a hundred bucks, but it went to charity. Not really. I don't even know what percentage. Do you have any idea what percentage actually gets to a charity? Yeah. 25% of the profits. So you have to pay for all expenses first, of course. And so money does go to charity, but I've talked to OLG people that are involved in setting up these charity gaming centers and said, you know, this is a lot of expense to set up these centers. Why doesn't yeah. OLG just give money to charities? And they agree. I mean, you got to be out of pocket. Uh, you know, my uncle, uh, Peter Bud, he passed away many years ago, but he was the original guy that brought uh, uh, pinball machines and that kind of stuff to Canada. And we had owned a, <laughs> owned, owned a bunch of stores called Funland all up and down Young Street in, in Toronto. And so I've been, you know, I was around the pinball game way back when. And then when they, <laughs> when they became electronic, because you're losing, when the ball was released, it was against the law. Then had, everything had to become digital electronic. There were absolute build-ins that enticed people to play over and over and over again. It wasn't gaming, so to speak. But, you know, a 14-year-old on a Saturday night could easily go through 25 bucks and quarters before he even knew it. What responsibility do we have as, as a community, as a society, if you will, to make sure we're protecting people? I think we have a significant responsibilities. We're thinking about these essentially slot machines and bingo halls. Like they really are. Um, bingo halls are bingo is a relatively safe game to play as, as far as problems. People having problems. Uh, slot machines are easily the crack cocaine of, of gambling. And uh, so to put these essentially slot machines in, in bingo halls is just uh, unconscionable, in my opinion, to do that in Ontario. I uh, really appreciate that you do this kind of work uh, with Dr. Harrington. I'm talking to Dr. Kevin Harrington. He's a director of the Knowledge Translation Stream and contact person for Gambling Research Lab. We're talking about what looks like a fun bingo type machine in a bingo hall which is really a small little tiny casino with casino toys and tools. So that's what we're trying to avoid. Uh, when we come back after break, it's going to be a big break here. When we come back after break, uh, we're going to settle in and do a bunch more stuff. So go get yourself a drink, have something to eat, use the bathroom, have a smoke if that's what you need to do, and come right back and get back on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host here, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. If you're just hooking in right now, you're on the Road to Recovery here, and I'm your host, Yona Bud, here at 640 Toronto. Thanks for joining us. And if you're coming back after a break, thanks for hanging in. And uh, a lot more stuff to do. We're going to talk about uh, some uh, controversial uh, roadside pro products used to 
trace and see if uh, drivers are impaired by cannabis. We're going to talk about something called doxing. It's a, something serious that we should be talking about. And right now we're going to talk about uh, electronic cigarettes. We've talked about it on this show many times before, specifically as it relates to its impact on teenagers and youth. Uh, but we got to talk about this until people get the drift. Um, coolants, the stuff that in-puff electronic cigarettes, they present a health hazard. That's uh, the big news here. It's world-renowned. People understand it. Electronic cigarettes, or ECs is what they're called, contain nicotine, solvents, flavor chemicals, and popular among young adults uh, in 2020. The Food and Drug Admin folks uh, and the FDA in the U.S. banned cartridge-based flavored EC pods but did not extend to disposable flavored EC products, electronic cigarette products, such as puff ECs. Unfortunately, the chemical composition and toxicity of the fluids in these puff ECs are largely unknown. We People don't know what they're sucking into their lungs. Researchers at the University of California, Riverside, and Portland State University examined 16 disposable puff devices that determined their flavor chemicals, synthetic coolants, nicotine concentrations, synthetic cooling agents like something called WS-23. Like, why would you consume anything that's got a number, like a secret agent number? That provides the cooling sensation. Uh, my guest this evening is David Sweener. He's not affiliated with the study in particular, but he's um, been involved in the world of uh, reducing cigarette smoking in Canada and around the world. He's been legal counsel to uh, health activist groups, and he's also worked with the World Health Organization and the International Union Against Cancer, uh, to name just a few of his organizations. And good evening, David. Thank you. How are you? Hi, Yona. Great, great to be on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you staying up late, buddy. I hope you're doing something fun. Um, <laughs> you know, hang on, folks. I just got to go and do an interview. I'll be right back. Uh, I'll take another martini, please. No, I'm just kidding. I uh, hope you're having a good time, though. But I appreciate you talking with us this, this evening. You know, uh, clearly I'm talking to someone who's uh, in the game and understands this whole concept of electronic cigarettes and the damage that it's doing to, you know, clearly adults as well. But it's such a kid thing these days. What do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, clearly we don't want young people to be uh, be using products like this. We don't want anybody who wouldn't otherwise be smoking a cigarette. But, Yona, the, the real challenge here is that cigarettes are killing, by Health Canada's estimate, about 48,000 Canadians every year. Uh, in the United States, the toll is 10 times that, almost half right. a million uh, lives. And it's because people are sucking smoke into their lungs. I mean, we know smoke is incredibly toxic. We know that there's things in some of the, uh, the electronic cigarettes that, that we can reduce those risks. But we also know that the best estimate is that cigarettes are in the range of about 20 times as hazardous as using these products, probably more than that. So really? it, it's one of these classic risk reduction to say, how do you get the people who would otherwise be smoking cigarettes to use something far less hazardous? And there's a range of possibilities. Uh, yet, how do you prevent other people from taking up an activity that increases their risk? You know, really no different than saying, you know, motorcycle helmets. How do you get people who are going to ride motorcycles to wear helmets without encouraging a whole lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be riding motorcycles to think, hey, this is a great idea, I'm going to ride a motorcycle now? Yeah. Well, you know what? I got to tell you something. Uh, with respect, David, we did a show, I don't know, a couple of months ago, maybe two, three months ago, and we looked at this, and it, it actually the, the stats were, from what I'm told, is that, you know, a kid that's, you know, someone who smokes uh, a year's worth of electronic cigarettes uh, has the lungs of a man who smoked cigarettes for 20 years. Is that not true? No, that's nonsense. Uh, 
there, there's a tremendous uh, amount of what I would consider to be nonsense as, as somebody who's worked in this field for 40 years and, you know, at, at a global level and, and trying to understand what really works, what's causing the harm. What causes harm with cigarette smoking is the smoke, uh, and that's what kills people. We know that the nicotine that people are looking for, because that's the drug they seek, right? They're, they're trying exactly. to get the nicotine. Yeah. Uh, nicotine yeah. is, is something people get addicted to. It's also something many people use to, um, uh, in, in a way that we call uh, self-medication. But as you know, an awful yeah. lot of drugs are used in that way. People are, are seeking yeah. some sort of effect, you know, everything from cognitive enhancement to, uh, to oblivion. Uh, and it's a matter of uh, understanding what's going into the body and knowing that there's this vast range of risks. And we fight the same battle that we've seen on you know, every other sort of drug use, including caffeine, of those who see this as a moral issue, you know, like a sin, that it's all equally hazardous, we have to stop yeah. it all. Yeah. Misinformation's yeah. fine, scare stories, stigma, yeah, go ahead. Uh, they're, they're sinners. They, they need to repent and do penance or face perdition. And, 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 it's, and the alternative to that is a much more pragmatic approach. Let's look at the science. Let's understand what's going on here. Let's look at the evidence from around the world. You know, a lot of people are shocked when they find out that places like Sweden have quite high levels of nicotine use, but they don't have the death and disease that we see in other countries because they use an alternative product. They're not smoking cigarettes. You know, we've seen that countries that allow alternatives yep. onto the market see these really re- uh, rapid reductions in cigarette smoking, followed by reductions in the diseases that they cause. And probably the yeah. most prestigious medical body in the world, the Royal College of Physicians in the UK, estimates that, you know, based on everything we know, that uh, the electronic cigarettes are likely to be at least 95% less hazardous than smoking cigarettes. Okay, so no, let, let me really jump in. It's hazardous, but it's just, uh, just an awful yeah. lot less hazardous. Yeah, let me jump in here. So what the study, the, the stuff we, we studied back when we were looking at this, it talked about the thickness, the, 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 the stuff, the... Um, uh, what's used to help fire the, the products inside the electronic cigarettes and, and various vaping products, that vaping oil, so to speak, what, how that coats the lungs different than a, than a cigarette. I'm not suggesting either one of them are healthy, but um, why don't we know more about the chemical composition uh, and toxicity of the fluids that are in these e-cigarettes? Why, why is it not more transparent? Well, a lot of it is now in, in countries that have regulated them, like the U.K., that regulate them for the point of, you know, how do you reduce the risk as much as you can? Know what's in these products, communicate it to consumers, only allow on the market the products that, that meet given standards. Uh, the study we're talking about tonight is one out of the United States where, um, you know, and speaking as a lawyer, the importance of how you rate legislation The United States allowed its Food and Drug Administration legislation on how to regulate uh, the whole range of nicotine products to be written by the country's biggest cigarette company in conjunction with an abstinence-only group. And the one thing they could agree on is they didn't want anybody to have alternative to cigarettes. So they made standards that made it virtually impossible to have safer alternatives to cigarettes. And... As a result, the, the products that would be safest, the products that were best understood, were kicked off the market. And the result is that we then got these disposables that this study's on. But that's exactly what you expect, right? This is what we find with uh, what become yeah. illicit drugs. Yeah. You don't get yeah. rid of the supply. You just change that supply to less reputable people. 
Uh, so how does that, how does that, have that issue with disposables, at least yet, because Health Canada hasn't totally killed the market for the uh, legitimate products. But we can avoid all of that just by having regulation the way we do with pharmaceuticals, with food products, with so yep. many other things to say, here are the standards, you need to meet these standards, and if you do, you're able to sell these products. Has the ban on the Juul product, which I'm sure you're familiar with, if anybody's just listening in, uh, having a chat here with David Sweener. He's the chair of the advisory board at the Center for Health Law, Policy, and Ethics at University of Ottawa. We're talking about e-cigarettes. Uh, David, the the um, this, the Juul product, when apparently there's a ban in Canada, has it created a, pro- a problem for the balance of the so-called legitimate um, product providers? Sure, it, it wasn't banned in Canada. The, the FDA tried to ban it in the United States, and that was overturned by, uh, by a court. It was actually quite okay. an odd decision by the FDA, because when you, you read it, you think they, they really don't, don't have a case here. They're saying that they're going to ban it because uh, somebody might be able to use a pod other than their pods in their product. You know, well, that's like saying that, you know, you could turn your car into a car bomb, therefore we're not going to allow people to sell you, uh, to sell cars. I, gotcha. uh, and that, uh, I, they, and that there was some information that Jewel didn't send them, which Jewel said, well, we gave you all of that toxicology information. You just mm-hmm. didn't read it. Uh, so Accord ended up uh, keeping the product on the market, but it certainly did a lot of damage to the brand uh, in the U.S. And Jewel's got so conservative because of all the attacks on them. Uh, it's actually, they've done far less than what they used to do in replacing cigarettes. It used to be seen as a very big threat to the cigarette business. And the cigarette company has been afraid for a long time that disruptive technology could replace cigarettes. Uh, you know, it's the biggest threat that they have faced. And we just end up in this odd situation that people who consider themselves to be anti-smoking groups are actually doing things to protect the cigarette uh, business by attacking all the alternatives to cigarettes rather than saying, how do we get rid of cigarettes? How do we get products available to deliver nicotine to people who are going to be using nicotine in ways that don't kill them, don't harm the people around them, don't make them stink? Uh, and, and, And focus on that. Focus on reducing risk as much as possible and giving information to consumers. Because we also see in the U.S. and in Canada tremendous misinformation. So you've got a lot of people using a far more hazardous product like cigarettes because they, they, they think that the alternatives are even more hazardous. So real, 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 real quick, Rick, I hate yeah. to cut you in on you here, David, but we only, we've got less than a minute left. Um, the concept, the way it's targeting young people. Uh, can you speak on that in 45 seconds? Yeah, well, you, you don't want targeting young people. An awful lot of uh, what's talked about has, has been you know, really hyped, saying if a young person has used a product, you know, any time in the last six months, we'll call them a user. Well, that, that really doesn't, uh, doesn't cut it. You know, when, on cigarette smoking, we talk about daily use as being the concern among young people, not somebody who had a, a cigarette on a weekend a couple of weeks ago. I. Uh, when we look at the, the vaping products, it, it did become a problem among young people. That seems to have fallen off. It was a trend. It was probably facilitated by all the people who were yelling about uh, kids using it, and that probably encouraged yeah. more kids to try. But we should be doing far more to, to aim it at, at adults. And what we've seen in the U.K. is by focusing on, on adults as something that gets them off cigarettes, it makes it far less appealing to young people. You know, say this is something for your your aunt or your your uncle, your teacher. It's it's you know for these old people who smoke cigarettes, and and that turns off the young people. Uh, so we're saving lives while discouraging young people from uh, from taking up the product. 
Thank you so much. I'm with David Sweener. He's the chair of the advisory board, Center for Health, Law, Policy, and Ethics, University of Ottawa, and the author of several e-cigarette and health issue studies. You should check it out. Uh, we'll have him back here uh, sometime soon to talk about uh, this. I'm sorry, this, sure, this story isn't going away. When we come back, we're going to talk about how the RCMP are deploying a controversial roadside cannabis screaming technology and what lawyers have to say about that. We'll be right back here on The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And we're back with The Road to Recovery here at 640 Toronto. Yona Bud in the house. I'm here as your host. Thanks for joining us this evening. And we're going to talk here about controversial roadside cannabis screening devices. We talked about this maybe six months or seven months ago. We were talking to some police officers in Ontario about um, what this technology was going to look like and how they were going to be trained. And a lot of people just didn't know, you know, they didn't really understand what's up, right? They didn't know what's going to happen. We still don't really know what's going to happen. And there's all kinds of controversy around how it works, if it works, uh, how it impacts people who may have THC in their blood yet not be impaired. It's, it's definitely a gray area, much more, much more difficult to, uh, deal with than alcohol, much easier to uh, trace and deal with alcohol on the fly, so to speak. So Mounties in a Territory announced last month that they had deployed devices designed to take saliva samples, that's what they do, take a saliva swab, right, and test for the presence of tetrahydrocannabinol, um, which is THC. The main uh, psychoactive substance that's in Canada, so in cannabis, excuse me, that's the THC, right? So the technology would help them detect impaired drivers and make roads safer. But some criminal lawyers have raised concerns about these devices and their ability to actually deliver reliable test results, especially and particularly in cold temperatures, right? They're affected. All the, all, see, all this testing stuff, much of it is, is especially saliva-based things, are often um, affected by temperature. So they argue the technology isn't effective at determining whether someone is actually impaired. It can lead to people being arrested who are actually innocent, says Kyla Lee. She's a lawyer based in Vancouver. She's our guest here. She'll join us here in a second. Lee says research has shown devices may be more likely to deliver false results in extreme cold temperatures and movement during analysis could also affect outcomes. Kyla, how are you this evening? Thanks for joining us. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Actually, I think it's what, like maybe the middle of the afternoon where you are? No, not quite. I'm sure. It's <laughs> no. early evening. Um, so again, uh, so you actually represented someone who had a constitutional challenge um, in Nova Scotia trying to deal with this this technology. Uh, but for the most part, across Canada, isn't this what some police um, uh, units are using currently, like not just the RCMP? Yes, it's being used by um, municipal police forces, tribal police forces, and RCMP across Canada. Um, we don't see a ton of charges that flow from the use of the equipment because it's not been used as much as I think everybody anticipated when it was first brought out. But it is still being deployed on the roads, and especially now in the summer sort of counterattack roadblock season. So from a, from a defense attorney's perspective, um, I got a whole bunch of questions. So from, from your perspective, what are, like, what are the intended, uh, or the unintended, excuse me, unintended consequences of the technology? Like, if it's meant to keep people impaired off the road, what's the problem here? Is it doing its job or really not doing its job? 
it's not doing its job. It doesn't look for impairment. What it looks for is a particular concentration of THC in a saliva sample, which is then equated to what an assumption is, is going to be equivalent THC concentration in your blood. Um, it'll also do that for cocaine. Um, they use it for cocaine as well in Canada. Um, but it's not actually testing whether you're impaired in your ability to operate a motor vehicle, which is what the police are arresting you for. And the science that correlates what's in your saliva to what's in your bloodstream is relatively new. Um, It's not very well founded in a large body of scientific research to make it something that I think we should put as much faith as we're putting in for the purposes of arresting people and subjecting them then to further detentions, um, investigations, and having bodily samples taken again at the police station. So... um you're you've defended people. I mean, I understand you're 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 defending someone in Nova Scotia on a on basis of constitutionality, uh, but my guess is you're actually representing people in real time, uh, locally that are being charged with impairment. I've defended hundreds of drug-impaired driving cases and thousands of alcohol-impaired driving cases. Interestingly, in British Columbia, I have yet to get a case where the police have actually charged someone after using this roadside testing equipment, which to me tells me that it's really not doing the job that's necessary because I would be seeing the cases. Yeah, and you know the reason you and I both know I've been you know involved in the criminal law for a long time as an investigator working with lawyers that are dealing with people that have mental health and addiction issues related to their crime. Anyway, without getting into that, we both know that the reason they're not bringing it to the table is because you're gonna you'd be all over it. Um, so you know it's the it's the weakness of the technology. So they don't want their case you know destroyed by the fact that you chew it up and spit it out. I'm sure. Um, God, did we talk? You talk about hundreds and thousands. It's amazing. I. I like to spend a lot of time talking with you about this. So currently, the, the this Dragger drug test five thousand and the Abbott So Toxa mobile test systems, they're the kind of the current go to. Um, what are the manufacturers? I mean, one would assume the manufacturers would be, you know, rallying to make sure that their tests would stand up. Um, are they just not? Is it just not going to work because it's just the wrong technology? Or because I, I think what you said is it measures the wrong thing. It measures levels of uh, toxicology versus a person's ability to function. So, for example, you know, someone like this Michelle Graves in the article, she uses it for multiple sclerosis, right? Um, I, you know, I, I use CBD for pain and anxiety and a few other things. Sometimes CBD can test as THC. It, it just there's a whole bunch of people going to be put, you know, through the system potentially or maybe not. Um, what a waste of time and money, right? Absolutely. And I mean, make no mistake, the manufacturers of these devices are spending millions of dollars as we speak looking into better equipment that they could create to test for actual impairment to put that in the hands of the police. Because the first company that comes up with something that can reliably discern impairment and can easily be used by police officers quickly in a roadside setting, that's basically a license to print money because every police force in the world is going to want to get a hold of that. Um, So they are working on the technology, but they don't have it yet. And this is the stopgap. And, you know, police forces are buying it. So they're making money. So as a manufacturer, you know, (laughs) it's great to be able to supply the police with something that you can make a small profit off for a period of time while you're developing better technology and build that trust relationship. 
Yeah, hard to do that though. If you you know, I was you you know, you're, you're smart enough to understand. I'm sure 100. percent So am I. That if you don't come out of the gate with something that works, it's really hard to come back and go. Oh, I know that one was crummy, but try this now, right? Um, let a couple. I have a couple of other questions. Um, the you know maybe some advice for somebody who might have you know had run into a situation where they've been charged or they're, they're currently you know facing something like this. Um, medical users. It, would it be not enough to just show the officer that you've got a, you know, here's my prescription or here's my medical card or whatever it is that uh, you carry province by province? Um, that should be enough to say, you know, hey, there's going to be THC in my system. I'm a medical user. Here's my card. Wouldn't that save a lot of people, you know, gre- like it's embarrassing, right, to be pulled out of the car and do the whole test and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and all the coppers I know, and I'm sure the same ones you know, Say that it's you know they they work with touch feel and, and eyesight right like they they can tell if somebody's impaired they don't necessarily need to swipe them or even have them blow over, um, so what where is this going? Well, you know, for medical users, they're in a very unfortunate position because not only does the criminal law prohibit, of course, impairment, which medical users aren't going to demonstrate because they take the cannabis not to be impaired by the medical condition. Um, The impairment um, is not the only thing that you can be charged with. You can also be charged with being over the blood THC concentration limit. And for a lot Uh... of medical users, they're always at that or above that blood concentration THC limit. That's cra- that's crazy. That means that people that use, you know, medical marijuana for, you know, pain and suffering and all the other things, medical purposes and anxiety and so on, um, they're technically not be able they're not going to be able to drive. I mean, technically, probably they shouldn't be driving because they would be violating the law. But, you know, in my opinion, I would rather have somebody who has a medical condition, who takes their medication and is functioning properly behind the wheel, even though they have some THC in their bloodstream, than somebody who's unmedicated and not managing whatever it is that they take their their THC for, because then they're going to pose a greater risk to the public. I mean, you know, an anxious driver is a bad driver. No kidding. You know, an injured or ill or sick driver is a bad driver. I don't want those people on the road. I want people to be taking their medication. I think that makes the road safer. You know, I can only imagine you're a great lawyer. You're, you're very good at what you do, and you're explaining this very, very easily for people to understand. Uh, we got less than a minute here. Um, you, you, you see this as a constitutional issue as much as a you know technology doesn't work issue. We got less than a minute. Absolutely. I think that we, our government owes it to us to invest in technology and to only purchase technology when it does the job. It makes the roads safer for everybody. It gives us confidence in the legal system. And we shouldn't have even a single innocent person detained by the police if we know that there's a potential for that. Um, that is contrary to our system of justice and contrary to people's charter rights. Well, I do appreciate you sharing with us this evening and uh, joining us. Maybe we'll uh, we'll talk about this again in a few months and see what's up and if anything's changed uh, in this uh, world of controversial roadside cannabis screening. Yeah, we talked about it for a long time. It's going to be a while before this stuff is legit. When we come back, speaking of legit, I'm gonna t- we're going to talk about uh, someone who had uh, woke up in the middle of the night with police standing outside her door and uh, at, machi- at, at gunpoint arresting her for something she knew nothing about because someone sent them to her house called doxing. We're going to spend a bunch of time talking about that and how you can protect yourself. This is Yona Bud on the Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okie 
Okie welcome back to the last couple of segments here on the road to recovery. We're going to spend both of them talking about this stuff called doxing. We want to hear from you as well. Have you ever been uh, a victim of somebody using your information, your online information, send nasty pictures to people or do something to infringe on your life in some way? Were you ever subject to that one where they say, we know you did nasty things on a porn site, we've got pictures, we're going to send them to everybody? I got that about four times. Um, kind of laughed because I don't go to those sites, but who knows what they can concoct and how they can impact one's life and their family and their job, right? by just sending out stuff that's not true. It's called doxing. So there's a trans woman. Her name is Twitch. She's, stream, she's, stream, she's a streamer. Uh, Twitch streamer, excuse me. Uh, Keyfowls is her name. Uh, and her she goes by Clara Sorrenti. Her fear came to life on a Saturday morning as armed police knocked on her door, asking her to come out as they had a search warrant for her home. A legit search warrant, okay? Sorrenti, a transgender woman and popular online streamer on Twitch, going by the name Kefels, has been doxxed, right? D-O-X-X-E-D, doxxed, with, with, with harassers sending false death threats, uh, her name and address to London, Ontario city councillors, leading to Sorrenti being arrested at gunpoint. You got to check this out, man. Pay attention. When I went into the hallway and they saw the, I saw the assault rifle, I screamed and I thought I was going to die. She went on to tell Global News in an interview, swatting is a tactic of calling police to a live streamer's home as armed police show up on their doorstep and attempt to intimidate them. No kidding. Doxing is publishing private information, like an address or phone number in public. We'll get to more of that in a minute in terms of this discussion around doxing. Give me a call. Have you ever been messed with online? Anybody kind of take your take your identity or send you stuff that wasn't you or threaten to, you know, if you don't send them some Bitcoin or some digital currency, uh, they're going to send pictures of you doing nasty things and, you know, of you being somewhere where you shouldn't or wearing something that you shouldn't or wearing nothing at all, sending those to people. That causes teenage kids to want to kill themselves, by the way, my dear friends. This stuff isn't funny. This is what causes young people to have pictures of them messed with and sent around and shared with people in, a, in a, you know, an incorrect context, if there's even a context. So Sorrenti, again, we're talking about this story. She was arrested on the morning of August the 5th, woken up by police yelling at her from her doorway. She opened the door, saw London Police Service crouched down wearing riot gear. Can you imagine? holding an assault rifle directly pointed at her. She was puzzled. She, she was then pulled out into the hallway by multiple officers, kind of manhandled, arrested, not even sure what she did. They can confirm that on Friday, August the 5th, London police were contacted by London City Hall, indicated that several individuals had received a letter threatening potential violence against individuals within City Hall later that same day. Officers um, commenced an investigation and through evidence obtained, okay, so they investigated, found evidence, were successful in obtaining a judicial authority search warrant for her residence. Can you imagine? I don't know what information they had. So she was arrested at the investigation progressed, later released without charges. He had no kidding, right? Pending an analysis of electronic devices seized, the investigation is ongoing, and at this point, uh, we... Uh, the article, they cannot provide a firm date as to when it will conclude. Sorrenti showed Global News a search warrant that indicated police were searching for a handgun, ammunition in her computers, 
Officers allegedly placed her under arrest, telling her that she was in possession of a legal firearm and she was taken to the police station. Eventually, after all her streaming gear and personal communication devices, as well as her partners, were seized, and remain they still remain in custody, by the way, since this article. During the search, they seized my work computer, my cell phone, my personal cell phone, as well as my fiance's work computer, personal cell phone, Sorrenti went on to say. On Wednesday afternoon, she confirmed that they were able to get her belongings back from London police. Uh, it's kind of terrifying, though, the thought that anyone can just take your name or an anonymous email, upload any picture of a gun, and a SWAT team will be sent to your house, and you'll have to stare down an assault rifle. This is not the first time. This, this has happened to several, quote-unquote, famous people in the past. It's made the news and the media many times. This is not new. Typically, people who have a public image, the bigger the public image, the more exposed you are to stupid people doing stupid things. I think I'm allowed to say stupid. It's late at night. There's no kids listening. You know what I mean? Like, there's no benefit other than harassing someone's life. There's no financial benefit. It's not like this is one of those fishing expeditions, which we'll get to, PH fishing expeditions, where they actually, you know, try to get money out of you for stuff. So she she said this doxing is particularly scary given that she's a trans woman who received death and hate threats on a regular basis. Um, she's been She's been targeted many times. What's interesting is that, it was apparently an issue at the Toronto Police Service where she was being threatened uh, and, and swatted and people were called, the police service was called to her, but after further investigation, they didn't attend. So they never made it to her house or to wherever she was. Uh, the contact, so after Global tried to contact Toronto Police Service, there is an ongoing investigation into that swatting um, call, right? Because they do investigate like a false fire alarm, same kind of thing. They investigate and charge people who... Uh, take advantage of police and, and um, emergency service folks for the purposes of messing with someone's life. Uh, report was filed. Interesting, though, the London Police Service never connected with the Toronto Police Service to see, in fact, that they had been called out to one of these things, right? Uh, that she's had an experience of someone you know, doing this. Uh, prominent celebrities like Joe Rogan and David Chappelle and J.K. Rowling, you know, they take a big shot at the gen- transgender community, so they get a lot of people online that don't like transgender folk and they turn them against them in whatever ways. And then those are the kind of people that begin to do this really nasty stuff. So you protect yourself. How do you protect yourself? We're going to talk about that now and into the next segment as well. If you're just tuning in, you're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. You're listening to 640 Toronto. I want to hear from you. Have you been messed with online? Has someone taken advantage of your confidential information? Perhaps try to use your name for something. Had someone, uh, you know, access your uh, email, send somebody something that says, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm in another in an island somewhere running out of money. Can you please just send me 500 bucks? Uh, I can't reach anybody to help me out. You know, those are all fake messages. But doxing is kind of different. We're going to talk about it right now. The term doxing, the word doxing is derived from the term dropping docs or documents. Doxing is a form of cyberbullying. And it uses sensitive or secret information, statements or records for the harassment, exposure, financial harm, or other exploitation of targeted individuals. Doxing means meaning involves taking specific information about someone, then spreading it around the Internet or via some other means of getting it out to the public. It's been fervent, 
for the not many, many years, simply because documents containing per- permanent records of facts about people and things have done and said they're powerful weapons against them. And a lot of this is public stuff or sort of public stuff if you look hard enough. So hackers could expose other attackers with whom they've been in competition, removing their anonymity when they expose them to the public, for example. Doxing has a prominent role in modern culture wars, for sure, which people involve targeting those who support a cause, like the, like the case in which uh, uh, the women who, the trans woman, same situation, right? Um, and it's opposition to, they, they try to push away their opponents. And, and I believe that this is some of the stuff that leads to gun and gang violence among youth. So how does it work? Doxing is based on the fact that nearly everyone has data about them floating around the Internet somewhere, protected by varying levels of security. So as soon as we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this and how you can protect yourself from it. We want to hear from you, 416-870-6400. We'll be right back to The Road to Recovery or on The Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. This is the last segment on the Road to Recovery here. I'm Yona Bud, your host, 640. If you're just tuning in, want to hear from you. Ever been messed with on the Internet, social media, someone take advantage of your information? Anyway, first of all, do you know where everybody in your family is? Before we get to this, you know where your children are, your loved ones, your animals, seniors in your life? If not, you need to go find them. And uh, if you're concerned about them, give a call to 911 or give us a call here, 416-870-6400. If you're looking to find me at all through the week, 877-777-5808, 877-777-5808, or send me an email, road to recovery at 640toronto.com. Love to hear from you. So we're talking about doxing. If you don't know what that is, that's when people mess with your information. Specifically, we had a story about a young person who uh, had police sent to the, her home uh, under duress, uh, or prepared to arrest her at gunpoint with riot gear because someone sent an informa- information about her that was false based on information they received on the Internet. Police often use the same or similar usernames, right? So talking about how to protect yourself. So let's talk. Let's get to how to help you about this, with this as opposed to learning more in terms of the details specifically. But people track your usernames. Uh, you're able to search it on your domain name. So you can do something called a Whois search, W-H-O-I-S search. And a Whois search will tell you um, if you have a public listing of the registry information. So, for example, if you have an internet, you know, Bobby's, uh, uh, Bobby's consulting company, uh, and, and it shows your name, Bobby so-and-so, where you live, your phone number, uh, more information than you want the average person to know. But if you don't provide a private setting on your domain name registration, everyone's going to know who you are, where you live, and bad people do this stuff. Something called phishing. So they uh, fish or scam or someone's able to infiltrate your email. They get into your email. They can either grab sensitive details about you or go through your accounts, your email, your, your and then do a doxing attack because they get all your email addresses. So you're prompted to click, how does a phishing scam work? Hey, click on this thing right now to win $100. And then you click on the click, you click on the link to a fake website, and there you go. They're in your system. Uh, and, and some of the stuff, some of the, it's, it's very attractive, by the way. It's not this, you know, you're not a dummy because you click on this, not at all. Some of this stuff is designed to be very attractive. There's stock, people get stalked on social media or they sift through government records 
or they track your IP address. Doxers can figure out your internet protocol address and then use that fact as it's linked to where you are physically to execute an attack. So they can find out if your internet protocol is open to the world. People can access that information and they can then execute an attack on you. There's also something called a reverse mobile phone lookup. I know it's a lot of information. There's so many ways that people can access your information if you're not careful. Packet sniffing, when someone, when doxing someone, attackers can use packet sniffing to take to their advantage. It's organized, you know, all your data is organized in, in, the, in packets as it crosses the internet. So sniffing, attackers are able to tell what kind of information is within it, right? They can grab passwords and bank account info, credit card numbers, that kind of stuff. They need to connect to it to your network somehow to get past the security and then capture the data. So they, if you don't block your your router at home, for example, and you you know your password is perhaps open to your neighbors, you're open to be doxed. So what are they looking for? They're looking for phone numbers. They're looking for social security numbers or your or your health card information or anything like that, right? Your SIN number, right? They're looking for your home address. They want to know where you live. I don't want anybody to know where I live. I mean, I do, but only the people that I want to know to know where I live. Not strangers, not potentially bad guys. They're looking for credit card details, right? They're looking to get access to your credit card information. And that can be weaponized for profit to harm your credit rating. They can mess with your credit rating, right? Anything like this happened to you? 416-870-6400. We've got about three minutes left. I'd love to hear from you. They want your bank account info, my friends. Click on here. You know, this is Scotiabank uh, sending you information, but if you don't click on this right now, you're putting your account at risk. Well, they send that stuff to me. The problem is I don't have a Scotiabank account, but if I did and I wasn't really paying attention and didn't know what doxing was because they didn't listen to my show, by the way, it's a podcast as well. You can catch it later. If you can't get it all now and send it to other people in your family, let them know how to protect themselves. And how do you protect yourself? You use something called a virtual private network if you can. So that kind of encrypts your stuff. It, it kind of makes sure your stuff is safe that you send over the Internet, right? Not a big deal. You can talk to your network provider. You know, any of the big providers, they, they'll help you provide. Uh, they'll help provide you with a VPN, a virtual private network, or you can get one online. Use stronger passwords. Change your privacy settings from time to time. It can't always be Molly123. Sometimes it has to, you have to change it up because if it's consistent, it's easier for people to hack it. Stay away from anything that looks like a phishing email, meaning that if you click on it, you're going to get something special or you're going to save yourself something. They're phishing. They're looking in for, for information. Do not click on anything that you don't know or from anyone that you don't know well. Keep separate email accounts for separate purposes. So perhaps business is, is separate from, you know, coaching the kids uh, hockey, which is separate from, you know, the, the girls, uh, you, know, uh, 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 you know, reading group or, or book club, so to speak. You know, separate emails, if you're sharing with other people, have emails specific to that share. Keep your social media privacy in check. Don't share stuff with people. Hide your domain registrations. We talked about that to make sure that you're clicked on not for privacy. Like not, it, it's for privacy, not for public. Be mindful of providing app information. When you put in a new, a new app in your, on your phone or in your, on your computer and it asks, something comes up and asks for permission to access all your stuff on the computer or on your phone, make sure you know what they're accessing and what they're, do, what you can do to protect yourself to make sure that they're not accessing information that might be used by bad guys.
If you get doxxed, what to do? You got to report it. Involve law enforcement if it's a big deal. Obviously, it's a big deal if they're messing with your life. Um, document exactly what happened. Take pictures or screenshots, things like that. Protect all your financial accounts. Secure all your accounts and get support from family and friends to make sure that they're there to help you at a time when you feel most vulnerable and threatened. I hope that helped a little bit. It certainly helped me. I learned a lot. I've made a lot of changes uh, in the last 24 hours to the things I do and how I do them to make sure I'm not going to get doxxed. Um, really appreciate you guys joining us tonight. It's been a fun couple of hours. Um, I certainly enjoy the company, and we love you. We really are the greatest audience ever. We're going to see you again next week. You've got tons more stuff to do. You are just getting off of The Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Be nice, spread nice, love the ones you're with. Peace.